Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies, and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 126 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian. Why Why are you going to make me pronounce this thing, man? Fiblethip, the lost Gottlieb. Brian? Brian, are you there? I, I was lost, Jerry. Do you get it? I don't get it. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> Fiblethip is uh, one of the cooler cards we have seen in War of the Sparks so far. I just wanted to give... The weird little homunculus, a bit of a shout out. Plus, we skipped him last week. We'll definitely talk about Fibblethip as we move through our continued evaluation of these War of the Spark cards. We got lots of new stuff this week. Some of it exciting, some of it weird. I would put Fibblethip probably in the weird category, but uh, the hits keep coming. And now we're almost, I mean, we're about two thirds of the way done with preview season. And uh, that means we're getting close to the point where we can start finally getting some real decks and getting some testing going. And I'm excited for it. Can't wait for that top 10 episode, man. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. It's, it's going to be a tough one again. I think a lot of these cards, uh, they trend towards the middle of power level is how I would phrase it. Like, I don't see a ton that are just out of the park, slam dunk. Oh, my God. Obviously, the format revolves around this, but a lot of good, solid options and uh, some build arounds, too, which is always good to see. Yeah, no Thrag Toss, no Bonfire, anything like that. And right. I th- I think... GRN and RNA both kind of like set the stage for the 10 different guilds. And now War of the Spark is like maybe shaking things up, adding things to existing archetypes, maybe creating some new ones, but you're not going to see like the, oh, here's four busted Golgari rares or whatever. Right. Moving out of the guild context certainly plays into that. Obviously, multicolor cards can be more powerful on their face they just make you work a little bit for the mana so that's going to tone things down a little bit but i don't want to make it sound like i'm not into the set it's just very different very interesting and also let's keep in mind very difficult to evaluate because we are dealing with the hardest class of cards to evaluate in all of magic of course planeswalkers yeah so uh i think this preview season is just slated to be three weeks because the full spoiler or whatever i want to say the full preview you know because i want to use preview instead of spoiler but that doesn't really make a lot of sense the full spoiler is going to be out i think next week and then stuff will be on arena very shortly after that so this one's going quick right and obviously we have that mythic championship coming up that's kind of a pre-release it'll be (laughs) very early early uh release of war of the spark as far as limited goes and obviously not even legal when it comes to the modern format Uh, the constructed format you're going to play at that PT. How do you think you're going to test for the limited side of this PT? I'm probably just not going to. Okay, sounds good. Maybe play some arena or whatever, you know, just try and fire as many drafts as possible. But I'm not going to like print out proxies of the cards and do like fake drafts or whatever. That's just nonsense. I mean, I might do a little bit more work actually trying to go through and rate the individual cards and and do stuff like that, which has been helpful in the past. And I've been kind of lazy recently and haven't actually done that. So what about 
what about a bonus episode? Maybe we could do that as a team. That's one of my favorite processes is doing those limited ratings. Never done any limited here. I don't know. I'm just saying if people want to see it, let us know. Be loud about it. That's legit. It would just take like, you know, six hours or whatever. Well, if you're going to do it anyway, we may as well sit down and let our listeners take a listen. Yeah, but like I would be just doing it in a notebook while like watching some anime or whatever. So I don't know. All right. So if if we can somehow get Jerry to interrupt his anime watching, then maybe we can put something like this together. We'll see. No guarantees. Look, man, I, I finally found some good shows to watch. It's been a while. So what, what do you I got work to do. Cho got me into Rising of the Shield Hero. Yep. That's not bad. Yeah, it's decent. And then I was watching Promise Neverland, which is like total like mind screw with you type of thing. Yeah, I, I watched the first episode while we were together in, I don't even know where we were, actually. I can't keep track anymore, but we were in some hotel room somewhere, and I finished the first episode, and at least check out the first episode if you're into anime. It's an interesting one. Anyway, uh, I guess we could actually talk about magic cards, but- No, we're an anime uh, podcast now. Let's just go deep. We'll <laughs> lean right into it. Dude, I would be down with that. We should do that. <laughs> okay, so we are- Going to start with the green cards. First up is, this is like not really any particular order. I just sorted them by color. So like, you know, we're going to do some of the more recent ones and some of the older ones and be bouncing around a decent amount. But uh, this one is Nissa's Triumph, GG Sorcery. Search your library for up to two basic forest cards. If you control a Nissa Planeswalker, instead search your library for up to three land cards. Reveal those cards, put them into your hand, and then shuffle your library. So pretty big upgrade if you actually have a Nissa. I'm with you. Like that's that's a real magic card. If you can search for any three land cards for two green mana, that sounds very powerful. The problem is the front mode. Just getting two basic forests. Is that worth it for two green mana? It's close, I think. And it is a, a form of card advantage, certainly. And maybe you can cheat on your land counts a little bit, but you still need to hit your second mana. So I think it's a very specific deck that wants this, like mono green mid-range-ish decks are really into this idea. That's usually not a thing, though. So we need to know a lot of the other pieces that are going around and supporting this card. And then can we make it worthwhile? Is, is Nissa good enough where we really want this payoff? And we talked about Nissa last week. It's an interesting card. It is an expensive card. It costs five mana. So having this turn on on turn six or whatever, not quite as strong. The toolbox for lands isn't super strong in standard. So I have the sense this is going to see very little play. But if it does, it's probably enabling a very exciting new archetype, one that we don't really see all that often. So we'll have to see where this falls. Yeah, I basically agree with that. So obviously getting uh, two extra copies of Forest is very good with Nissa who shakes the world. And that might lead you to play some like maybe mono green or two or three color, maybe mid-range deck. I mean, there were some Naya decks last season that uh, could have benefited from this, just like the treasure map in the game with like main firing you type of thing. Yeah, And they didn't really have like that many basic lands, but obviously you could change things a little bit. And as far as like Nyssa is concerned, you still have the shock lands to actually backpack off of her uh, mana flare ability. And then the big question to me is what three land cards do you get? Yeah, that's kind of my beef. And I don't know that there's like a slam dunk series of lands. I mean, you could think like Arch can be good. Again, this all predicates on their existing a mid-range-ish green deck, which usually don't have the tools to do that. So I don't know. I don't see it right now, but I, I think it's unique. I think it's potentially powerful. 
Uh, if we had a cheaper Nissa, then this gets real exciting. Unfortunately, it's not quite of the power level where we can reach back to older formats and take advantage of some three mana Nissas. But I'm going to keep my eye on it. We'll see. I mean, we never know when you're going to get an additional copy of a Planeswalker, right? Like these core right. Planeswalkers show up a lot. So future sets may have a Nissa. Although I'm still like holding out hope that this is going to be the last we see of Planeswalkers for a while. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to be the case or not, but that is my wish. But there could always be a Nissa in a future set. Truth. Uh, next up, we have Forced Landing. 1G instant put target creature with flying on the bottom of its owner's library. And people have just been desperate for an answer to Rekindling Phoenix for so long. This also answers Seraph of the Scales cleanly. Not that that card is seeing a ton of play or whatever. And not much to really say about this card outside of like it just being a good sideboard card. Yeah, good answer to a real problem that exists in standard. And I think a lot of green-based mid-range decks have found issues with Rekindling Phoenix in the past. And now you have an out. Always nice to have more options. That's all this is, an option for a very specific problem. Yep. On to the red cards, we have Chandra's Triumph, 1R Instant. And you're going to be hearing a lot of that. 1R Instant is very common in this set. Uh, Chandra's Triumph deals three damage to target creature or planeswalker and opponent controls. Uh, this deals five damage to that permanent instead if you control a Chandra Planeswalker. So does not go face, but is not completely dead against a control deck because in theory, you can actually kill a Planeswalker with this. I still think that this is just much weaker in general than something like Lightning Strike, but it's nice to have a little bit of diversity. Yeah, you would have to be leaning pretty hard on Chandra before you turn to this over Lightning Strike. I don't think that's going to happen. This feels more like a limited card to me. Uh, you would have to routinely be doing five damage before this is acceptable constructed rate. Not going to happen. I don't think actually the the Chandra Planeswalker we have in the set is all that strong, first of all. And second of all, this just comes online a little bit too late in that scenario. I mean, it's nice there's like a play pattern where you play Chandra, they play Teferi and plus, and you just get to pop it. But if they're plussing, they're probably pretty safe in most instances, and they could just bounce your Chandra. So who knows how often that's actually going to happen. Probably a miss is my guess. Agreed. Uh, next is up, Jaya's Greeting, 1R Instant. This deals three damage to target creature, Scry 1. I think I'm going to say I, about the same things. It feels more like a limited card. This is very narrow, only hitting creatures. And is Scry better than being able to go face is really the question. And in most cases, I think the answer is no. You can probably come up with some exceptions, right? Like if you're doing team or reclamation stuff where you're super incentivized to get deeper into your deck, maybe you will look towards Jaya's Greeting to just find additional copies of your key cards, your wilderness reclamations. But you need a very good reason before you're doing this stuff. That's the only one I have right now. Maybe I guess Ral Combo is another one where you're trying to set up that combo and you really need to find specific cards. Anything where you're really incentivized to not worry about your opponent's life total for the most part, like you're just winning in a flash of glory and where you're trying to find specific cards. They can at least consider Jaya's greeting. So little narrow, maybe some fringe play. Right. I, I think of Team of Reclamation and how they play Shiv and Fire over Shock and granted they are a deck that generally makes a lot of mana. Mm -hmm. So the kicker on Shiv and Fire is actually palatable, but... At the same time, if the format shifts to being about three toughness instead of two toughness, I, I could see that swap and having a card like that with the scry tacked on being a little bit better than just playing lightning strike because you're not going to kill a lot of planeswalkers with that. And 
doming them is not really your plan. But even in those instances, I don't know if it's better than Chandra's Triumph. I mean, I guess Lightning Strike is just better than Chandra's Triumph. So, yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's hard that you can't pull the scry value out of it in creatureless matchups, like short of targeting your own things, which maybe, I mean, if you you start playing like Augur of Bolas and you just need to get deeper into your deck in an emergency situation, you have that out, I guess. It's certainly not something you want to plan towards. I've Shivan fired my own niv so it's, it's not yeah. off the table. Right. Uh, next one is Heartfire. One R instant as wow. an additional cost to cast the spell, sacrifice a creature or planeswalker. This deals four damage to any target. These are all commons too. Wow, that's pretty incredible for the limited environment. Triumph's uncommon. Oh, okay. My mistake. But Chandra's Pyrohelix is common. <laughs> right. That's true. Uh, this card's really good, though. I, I think this is quite a bit better than the other two cards we talked about. Just as like a damage source, like four damage for two mana is fine. And in the late game, when you're doing the last points, points of damage, you're not afraid to trade off your small creatures. Uh, there's also like doing this in response to a removal spell, blanking Vraska's Contempt. So I think both aggressive red decks and, of course, we talked a lot last week about combo-based red decks and ones that are maybe looking to do things like Thud to sacrifice some big bodies. There's the the Dreadhorde creatures, Dreadhorde Arcanist, and what's the other one? Marauder is the red-black one, right? Butcher. Butcher, thank you. And both those cards play okay with Heartfire. Obviously, it, it's more card for the Butcher, but I, I like having this option. I like having some redundancy if you're going to go pure combo, and I think that this is just a fine spell on its face. Yeah, it it's kind of worrisome because unless you're specifically in one of those combo turns, it is not going to be as good as Lightning Strike. And I, I think about the current iterations of Mono Red and how they're built and like how many hard fires would you actually play? And it's like, I don't know, maybe one or two. Like the deck is really good at kind of playing this control game against creature decks with mm-hmm. uh, Experimental Frenzy at the top end. And this card doesn't really help you do that whole game plan. And your plan against everything else isn't like, oh man, I'm just like one point short or whatever. So I don't know. You would have to be like weirdly suicidally aggressive for this card to be worth it, I think. Or just have a lot of sacrifice synergies, but even then. I think that interpretation is fair given the present state of Mono Red. But I do think we should mention that Mono Red has changed a lot. And you can make the argument that like it's just done so despite itself and it should have just been an experimental frenzy deck all the time. And you might sell me on that. That's pretty reasonable. But we have to remember that it's not always going to have access to those kind of game plans. It can take a more aggressive stance. It can do like more risk factor, light up the stage type stuff. So if yeah. it tries to go a little bit more in that direction, then I think Heartfire gets a little bit better. Heartfire is appealing to me if you decide that four copies of Spear Spewer is where you're supposed to be. Okay, that's a good way of looking at it. Uh, next card is Jaya, Venerated Fire Mage. This is an uncommon Planeswalker, 4R. Five starting loyalty if another red source you control would deal damage to a permanent or player, it deals that much damage plus one to that permanent or player instead. And worth noting that it is another red source. So it does not count Jaya herself. And my, minus two, this deals two damage to any target. So we're looking at four damage just in this card for five mana, not the best rate. But getting some upgrades on every single other thing we may have on the battlefield. We've seen how powerful that effect can be 
obviously Flame of Keld was the source we were getting presently in standard. I think just on the whole, though, you're asking for too much mana here. And when you're comparing this to other options and, you know, you already mentioned Experimental Frenzy, obviously there's Chandra. There's a host of four mana options that we often think about. I don't think this does quite enough. I think you need to... Five mana is just a ton for these red decks. They don't play that many lands. I mean, you can start talking about this in more of a controller strategy, a more mid-range strategy, and then it gets a few points. But then I don't think you're leveraging the passive that's present on this card. So that doesn't really excite me all that much. I think this card is mostly another limited Planeswalker. Again, I will just put the same caveat out there. These Planeswalkers are so hard. They're so hard to evaluate. <laughs> but five is a lot of mana, and I'm mostly going to pass on Jaya until I see reason not to. Yeah, I don't know if this could combo with like Judith or Electrostatic Field or whatever, or if that's even worth it, because five mana is a lot. And for five mana, you can get something like the Eldest Reborn or Skargan Hellkite, Siege Gang Commander, like these powerful cards that already don't see a ton of play. So right. I'm skeptical. Right. Yep, I'm with you. Next card is Krenko, Tin Street Kingpin, 2R12, Legendary Creature Goblin. Whenever this attacks, put a plus one, plus one counter on it, then create a number of one, one red goblin creature tokens equal to Krenko's power. How many like Legion war boss, goblin rebel master type of cards do you think we're going to get in magic's lifetime? All of them. We will get all of them. So, <laughs> somehow there will be new ones in every set. Krenko's interesting because given the goblins that are present in standard, each goblin has the potential to be the straw that breaks the camel's back and just like push the tribal synergies to this point where, okay, now this deck is doing something. Now it's got enough redundant pieces where we can do uh, war chief stuff and finally get paid on it. On its face, Krenko's kind of meh. I, I mean, I think it's good. I think it has some of the same problems that war boss had where it really needs to find a good spot where it can reliably attack. It doesn't have the immediate impact of war boss. It doesn't clock quite as hard. But it's close. And if you're pumping your team, if you're using Goblin Lords, then Krenko obviously gets a lot more appealing. So I don't think we should dismiss this card. I think we should carefully track every Goblin that's printed presently. This isn't enough to send me running for my Goblins. I'll say that. Yeah, there's there's Vanquisher's Banner, which always felt pretty close. And then uh, Volley Veteran, which yep. you would think would be good enough, but there weren't really enough ways to go wide. And I think Krenko does a reasonable job of going wide, assuming that it lives. But overall, Goblin's still kind of a miss. But I, I agree with you that it is very close. Like you you have Goblins like on every slot in the curve. So Yeah, there's, there's Trash Master too. Goblin Trash Master is floating around right, out there. Right. So who knows when all that stuff comes together. Uh, next up, we have the most recent preview as of us recording this cast. This is Illurg the Razebore, 3RR for a 6-6 legendary creature boar god, mythic rare. I think that's worth noting. And this has trample. And whenever this attacks, you may put a creature card from your hand onto the battlefield, tapped and attacking, return that creature to your hand at the beginning of the next end step. And when this dies or is put into exile from the battlefield, you may put it into its owner's library third from the top. Go. So I've had about 10 minutes to evaluate this card because that's about when it came out. My first impression is that it's good. Maybe very good. I think that this is the kind of mid-range-ish curve topper that Gruul has possibly been looking for. It feels possibly stronger than Skargan Hellkite if you are building around rhythm, 
which is something that that's a card that we were super high on. It has not quite panned out thus far, but if this card gets haste, things go bonkers real quick. And I also think you have to think carefully about what your creatures are doing when they enter the battlefield. And then if we want, we can start talking about the fact that this is like through the breach sort of. And is there something we can do if we're somehow taking advantage of that? There's of course something like Niv-Mizzet. If you want to cheat a really powerful creature into play, this could potentially do so. So we need to start looking at those comes into play triggers. We need to understand what kind of broken things we can explore. Is this a card that can not just be used for what it does on its face? And, And I think on its face, it's fine. I think it does a great job of very quickly generating a problematic battlefield. Also, its sizing is interesting. Six power and toughness is very, very big, overcoming basically everything. So I need more time with this card. My instinct, though, is that there's a reason this is a mythic rare. It's probably very, very powerful. And my starting point would be the broken things. What's the most busted thing I could put into play with this? After that, I just want to evaluate it as a fair card. Yeah, and even looking at the fair cards, it's like, okay, five mana, six, six, those are reasonable stats. You could play Galta alongside this thing, and that's perfectly reasonable. Sure. Rhythm of the Wild was definitely the first place I went, especially since if this thing dies or gets exiled, like you're, you're just going to draw it up in a, a couple turns again. So it's right. not even like that, that big of a deal. Like with Rhythm in play, they're always going to be living in fear of just, you know, taking basically 18 damage, right? Which is kind of crazy. Or I guess yeah. 19, because you can put a counter on Galta. But for modern implications, like Gorio's Vengeance type stuff, I'm not sure exactly what this does. I guess instead of playing through the Breach, maybe you could have some copies of this and like maximize velocity or whatever. It's just, it's basically like the same thing, which is kind of funny. Uh, so yeah, I like this card. This is, this is one of the funner cards to explore in the set for me. Yeah, combo-ish, but... Also with fair applications, and I think that's cool. Yo Man 5 called it Borio's Vengeance over on Twitter, which I thought was pretty clever. I'm down with that. So we'll see if that gets explored, but I don't know if this is going to quite get there in modern. Although, keep in mind, there's things like Cavern of Souls where you just get to name Bor and then this always resolves. So who knows? I, I don't think it's out of the question. When you're talking about those kind of value situations where you're putting into play a gristle brand or uh emrakul which although emrakul you wouldn't get the annihilate trigger so that's kind of a miss yeah but they just die right usually they die very fair point you could just do like what what's the big thing the world world spine worm you could do that instead if you wanted to but whatever it's all kind of besides the point you can do huge huge things and we'll have to see if that's good enough to hold pace in modern uh and we'll see what the biggest thing we can do in standard is i'm sure did you see the deck that Canister tweeted out? I did, and it was silly, but maybe this is the perfect card for it. So this is a, a Travis Wu original. This is like Gemstone Cavern, Serum Powder, using Pull from Eternity as a way to get Narset into the graveyard, and then you go Rio's Vengeance Narset and hit like Conflux and Enter the Infinite and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like this is maybe another piece for that where you could go a little bit deeper on actual creatures like Gristlebrand, Emrakul, whatever. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's stuff like that where it's like, okay, these, these sorts of decks are just getting kind of scary. I think so. I think there's enough redundant ways to do the same thing where it's, it's starting to get to like sneak and show territory in modern. Who knows? I think it bears watching. I'll say that. Well, I've, I've played against some, uh, Gorios decks in the last couple of days with blue red Phoenix. And I got to tell you, 
Uh, I would not be playing Gorios in a field with main deck surgical extractions, but that's right. just me. Seems seems a little silly. Uh, you do get that London Mulligan, though, so. That is true. It definitely helps. Yeah. Last red card, we have Mizium Tank. 1RR, Artifact Vehicle, 3-2, Trample, Crew 1. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, Mizium Tank becomes an artifact creature and gets plus 1, plus 1 until end of turn. You wanted to talk about this one. Why? Yeah, I think this card's good. So you're going to have to tell me why you think it's bad, and then I'll, I'll take it from there. Well, it's it's three mana for a do-nothing. Mm-hmm. And then, granted, it is hidden from Kaya's Wrath and the like. Right. And then you have to crew it to turn it on for very minimal damage or play a non-creature spell, at which point you're attacking for four. This is like uh, Riddle Form and... The crappy like Halcyon Glaze or whatever from Ravnica. Granted, that one was creatures or whatever. It's, it just reminds me of those cards where if this card actually gave you some sort of value, you know, like if this was a smuggler's copter type of thing, then I'd be more about it. But as is, even just like as a damage output thing, this doesn't strike me as particularly good. Well, the plus one plus one stack. So if you're doing cantrippy stuff or cycling through your deck very quickly, obviously this gets much bigger. I like yeah, it. Yeah, prowess. Yeah, I, I like its resiliency to wrath effects. I think that's meaningful. I like that it has virtual haste in those situations where you top deck, you know, whatever dork off the top and you just have a beat or, or you just play a burn spell. And now like you're in this situation where you've been wrathed, right? And you should have nothing, but instead you have a Mizium take sitting there. <laughs> you lightning strike your opponent and they're taking seven in a situation where they should have some comfort going into your turn. And, and I think this takes away a lot of comfort. We've talked a bunch about these combo-ish decks. I don't know if this is part of the equation there, but the trample matters a lot if you're going to be pumping your things. It's worth noting you can't just Colossus to turn this on because you can't target it until it's a creature. But I, I think there'll probably be enough redundant ways to get this going where this will actually be a key card for those all-in aggressive decks Maybe it has to be a sideboard option. I mean, you say it's a do-nothing, but isn't every single vehicle kind of a do-nothing by that definition? And at least this has an alternate path to manning it up when you're just blanking on finding a creature in a, a few turns. I'm, I know we've all had the experience of sitting there with our vehicle on the battlefield and just not being able to turn it on. It's something that happened all the time back in like the Cultivator's Caravan days where you're like, okay, anything comes off the top of my deck and I'm just going to beat my opponent on the spot. And you just blank and blank and blank because you draw non-creature spell after non-creature spell. This alleviates some of that pain to some extent. Okay, so first of all, I never registered Cultivator's Caravan in a tournament, nor would I. Missing so out. I don't. I, <laughs> I really don't think I am. Although I'm sure if you talk to Michael Majors, he would agree. But th- think of the vehicles that actually saw play. Like there, there were two mana, incredibly powerful, or were like the five mana Sky Sovereign FTK type of things. And right. As a sideboard card against Esper specifically, this seems fine, but, and I I hate to be a broken record here, but I would never play this against Esper when I could just play Treasure Map. All Treasure Map all the time. Uh, Fleet Rail Cruiser is another one I would mention, which was just kind of similar to this card in a lot of ways. Immediate damage output. Obviously, you would need to go like this plus spell to get the quick damage burst. But uh, it, it reminds me of that card where it's an aggressive option in matches against constructed decks you have a dangerous love affair with treasure map so you will always go to that option when you're trying to figure out these control matchups i'm lower on treasure map than you are i like having an option like this to possibly break those matches open so the the tank doesn't do the cruiser thing because it doesn't get haste right so you still have to wait a turn no matter what that's fair okay 
little bit different in that regard. Yeah. So, I mean, Cruiser as just a lava axe, I think was okay, but even mm-hmm. still people figured out that that card was not very good. You know? No, you're right. That card ultimately faded away. Yeah. We'll have to see where Mizium tank falls. I like its ability to get big and uh, get big out of nowhere. And we'll see how much combo turns like that matter. If these all in aggressive decks, these kind of infect decks as I'm terming them, which is a little bit of a misnomer, but you get where I'm going with that. We'll see if those decks are real and if this is something they can leverage. Well, you should write an article about that instead of all the buy a box promos. Uh, no, it'll, it is my duty until the end of time to always write <laughs> about a buy a box promo. Somehow I have solidified that rule for myself. So uh, maybe maybe next week. I think you know we try and not duplicate these cards as we cover them over on Star City. And uh, the, the Dread Horde Marauder was already covered. So I, I can't really go down that route yet. But once we're in the stage where we're just doing deck ideas, certainly I'm going to write about that deck. Okay. Uh, so onto the black cards, we have Vizier of the Scorpion, 2B, 1-1, Zombie Wizard. When this enters the battlefield, amass one, and zombie tokens you control have death touch. It's kind of a beat, right? That little clause at the end there. If it was just tokens? zombies had death touch, yeah. So It's a lot different. Mass creatures, yeah. It, it changes things a lot. I do think making two bodies is a pretty big deal for the zombie tribe in most instances. Usually it's one that really benefits from getting wide and leveraging lords right now the lords aren't super good it's not like back when you were playing zombies and you had things like liliana's mastery so lower on this card i think it needs support that it's presently lacking before it's doing anything really exciting yeah i mean mastery was dope but crypt breaker was was op of course uh last black card we have massacre girl 3bb legendary creature human assassin 4-4 menace when this enters the battlefield, each other creature gets minus one, minus one until end of turn. Whenever a creature dies this turn, each creature other than Massacre Girl gets minus one, minus one until end of turn. Defile Girl. Why don't we just call it that? Yeah. A little yeah. Hearthstone shout out. This is a cool effect. I think it's maybe a little inconsistent for constructed play, although you can think of a lot of instances. This would be absolutely backbreaking. Uh, and you can think of a lot of decks it's very good against. So I see this as possibly a powerful sideboard option uh, a little bit of additional sweeper plus beater that you can use i was thinking a lot about how this actually affects the sultai decks and i think you're going to get a lot with this in most instances against sultai i wonder if this is even something that you might want to deploy in the mirror like five mana is a ton but if you're just wrathing your opponent i mean we talked a lot about fine finality and how that can or excuse me, not Fine Finality, uh, Status Statue, and how that in combination with Goblin Chain Whirler was a really, really key piece of interaction for mid-range mirrors. Uh, and, and that deck hasn't quite materialized, but maybe this is just the effect you're looking for, Massacre Girl, the one-sided wrath to really regain parity. I don't know. It, it catches my eye, but the format has to break in a certain way and it has to have enough spots where it's good. Certainly there has to be enough X1s around so you can get the chain going. And, uh, you know, if Sultai moves away from something like Land of War Elves, then this card becomes blank very quickly. So Right. But this this card against the mono-white aggro decks, for example, is just bananas, right? Well, you got to beat Loxodon again, assuming they're able to pump those toughnesses up a little bit. So I, I think there's counterplay to it. But in the right situation, yeah, it's absolutely backbreaking. I mean, you have to beat Loxodon or just have your own Land of War Elf or whatever. Okay. That's a good way of looking at it. So, you know, it is it is Defile, right? So Yep. It, it's one, one of the more complicated cards in all of Hearthstone history, I think. But 
I don't know, it kind of blew me away with the ease that a lot of people were able to just set up like absurd defile turns. And yeah. I don't think we'll have as much of that in Magic, but even just this as like an ETB kind of like, you know, clear the board except for her type of thing. I like it a lot. And as like a Vanifar target, I like it a lot too. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's a good call. So out of the blue cards, we have Kazmina, Enigmatic Mentor. And this is new Planeswalker for all for all I know. 3U, 5 starting loyalty, uncommon Planeswalker. Spells your opponent's cast that target a creature or Planeswalker you control cost 2 more to cast. And minus 2, create a 2-2 blue wizard creature token, draw a card, then discard a card. Sideboard again? Like, uh, how many decks actually want to be in the business of Kazmina? They want it to be their focal point. I don't think it's that many, but as a way to generate kind of persistent threats against something like, you know, think Mono Blue versus Esper, maybe can explore something like this, just making their spot removal really inefficient and awkward while just sitting on the battlefield after it's produced a couple of 2-2s and looted two times. That sounds pretty good to me. I don't think I want to be trying to leverage this in game ones because there's a lot of matchups where this is going to be almost a blank and you're playing paying four mana just put some really mediocre creatures into play but where you're not being pressured you have some time i could see kazmina as a nice curveball yeah i basically think of this as like a fixed version of jace cunning castaway where you're making two twos and you just get the loot right away which is awesome and then mm-hmm. the whole shielding thing is super nice uh, specifically for like Esper against Mono Blue, like you noted. But even I think Mono Blue against Mono Red, not that that's necessarily what the matchup's about, but it could be good. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that this card will likely see play at some point. Uh, I don't think it's going to be, you know, four of All-Star, etc. but definitely playable, definitely something to pay attention to. With you. And then the the star of the show, Fiblethip, The Lost, 1U, Legendary Creature, Homunculus, 1-1. When this enters the battlefield, draw a card. What, when if what en- enters the battlefield? This. What what? Card name. <laughs> okay. If it entered from your library or was cast <laughs> from your library, draw two cards instead. When this becomes the target of a spell or ability, or the target of a spell, sorry, shuffle this into its owner's library. So Neoform, Vanifar, Bolus's Citadel? Uh, okay, I like that. How about one we have not talked about in quite some time, a card I was quite high on, Tashar. Not doing anything for oh, you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simon Nielsen just wrote an article yeah. on this. Yep. Simon Nielsen put up a, a great piece about uh, Tashar-based combo deck, essentially using... Well, I'm not even going to go into it here. Honestly, go read the article. It's a complicated combo, but Simon brought up a very good point that most of it plays from the graveyard. And essentially, if you're generating some graveyard velocity, you can really take advantage of it. Fibblethip does basically everything that deck wants as a quasi-elvish visionary with some upside even. I, I think this card is really good. Like it actually, we undervalue this effect always, 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 always. But any comes into playability on a two mana creature is usually worthwhile. And the fact that this could just be exploited in some situations. Like it's hard to get those two cards, but if you get them, this card goes off the charts pretty quickly. And it wouldn't surprise me if there's actually far, far more that we can do with Fibblethip. And we just don't know yet. You know, the Tashar deck is a very good example of it. Like, I don't think our initial instinct is to go grab Arvonas and Tashars and Stitcher suppliers and jam all those cards together, but I'm pretty sure this deck works. It looks real to me. 
And obviously, longtime listeners of the game podcast know Tashar is a card I've been high on for a very, very long time. So I'm excited to see if that can finally get some legs in the format. Yeah, it'll be interesting to try. I mean, I, I kind of feel like even though the deck has an infinite combo that you will eventually reach if the game goes on to like turn eight or something, mm-hmm. it, it's really difficult to gain traction against the aggressive decks in the format. And that was kind of what the Tashar decks were lacking before. It's what the Judith decks are lacking now. And maybe you can actually just outgrind Esper. I'm not sure, but uh, it'll be interesting. Yeah, that's one of those things that I'm not even going to put forth a guess on because there are so many moving pieces with a combo deck like that. You you really need to play those matchups to understand them, to see if you can actually hold the battlefield while you're under pressure. And it's not going to be clear just looking at card lists. So we'll explore that. Uh, we'll keep looking for other homes for Fibblethip, I'm sure. I, I saw people mention things like Vivian's Arcbow, uh, where you can get the two cards reliably off, off Fibblethip. So we'll see if that gets explored sure. as well. Sure. Are, were you lukewarm on Arcbow? Because I, I know I was. I started fine on it. As our conversation went on, I got actually very low on it. And I, I yeah. think it just misses in too many situations. That's my biggest problem with it. Like, no matter how many creatures are in your deck, like activating it for three is always going to be a risky proposition. And the fact that it comes saddled with a discard on top of it means I'm afraid. And maybe that's just me being overly cautious and maybe that's poor deck building, but I'm low on it until someone shows me I should be high on it or until I can figure out the puzzle. Maybe Fibblethip's a big part of it, but like, what are we doing? Where's the big payoff? I guess I'll also mention that this might be a card to enable those Vanifar chains as well uh, and give Vanifar some card advantage built into sacrificing its one drops, which is nice to see. I don't think that's what the deck was missing, but it's something, something to keep track of. Yeah, I, I guess you want like the explore creatures to make sure that you have enough resources. You want to be hitting your land drops every turn. You want cards in hand to be able to discard to this thing. But I don't know. It still seems just slow and awkward and, I don't know why people like it. Because it looks fun, Jerry. And we're all here for a good time. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Resigned to have fun. Like, how dare you make me enjoy myself? I mean, if if I'm here, I suppose I might as well. Okay. Thank you. All right. On to the white cards. We have Tomic, Distinguished Advocist, Dub Dub 2-3, Legendary Creature, Human Advisor, Flying, and then some text that doesn't really make any sense, but uh, lands on the battlefield. And land cards in graveyards can't be the target of spells or abilities your opponents control. Your opponents can't play land cards from graveyards. That's perfectly clear. What are you talking about? Very obvious on its face what it does. A a card that new players are going to be absolutely over the moon about, I'm sure. Well, so you can't can't loam and you can't thespian stage, right? And you Mm -hmm. can't crucible. And you can't wasteland. Sure. That seems like a downside. I don't know. Well, so it, it's only your opponents, right? Oh, it's, it's opponents. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it, it's not a downside. I mean, so this is a card. Every single time one of these cards gets printed, everyone goes bonkers. And this is, of course, a human. I, I don't think this is meant to target the modern format. I do think this is an interesting card in Legacy, where some of the lands decks are quite powerful, very good options. Obviously, Wasteland is everywhere. However, the double white cost means this is probably only going into death and taxes. And it also has the problem of having three toughness, which you wouldn't assume is a problem, 
But that beats up on your recruiter of the guard engine where you can just put one copy in your sideboard and then have access to multiple virtual copies. So it's got a bit of a problem in that format too. I'm interested in this in the legacy format, but it also wouldn't surprise me if it's just a complete miss. I will say the body being a 2-3 is nice because a lot of these cards come stapled to like 2-1 ground bodies that can never possibly matter. Here we have a 2-3 flyer, which is certainly a point in Tomic's favor, but no guarantees here. I think this card... It needs a very specific metagame, and I don't know that you want to like jam three copies in your sideboard to have reliable access to it, so maybe this just blanks totally. Yeah, I don't know. I was just looking at this in the context of like standard mono-white aggro, and it's like, oh, that's kind of cool, because I was already looking at playing the uh, two-mana dual deck card until right. the Tithe Taker came out, so this is mostly an upgrade to that. Obviously, it's legendary, so you can't have multiples, probably can't play a bunch of them, but... It's it's a reasonable body for sure. No, I think so too. Two three body on a flyer is good. And also I talk a lot about this when these <laughs> this card text comes out that makes no sense. You say, what is this doing in the standard context? And the answer is nothing. I'm always like, well, maybe something's coming in the future. And we'll have to keep an eye on Tomic if <laughs> for whatever reason land abilities and lands coming out of the graveyard becomes a focal point of a future format. That sounds kind of like an awful format, but all right. Uh yeah. Maybe it's a return to Torment Judgment Days. Who knows? Ooh, I'd be in for that. <laughs> there you go. I sold you in just a few lines. Yeah, Threshold, let's go. Threshold, you only get 17 playables per draft, and the all dream. your cards are just awful. Everyone's favorite format. Yeah. Uh, so last white card is single combat, three dub-dub sorcery. Each player chooses a creature or planeswalker they control, then sacrifices the rest. Players can't cast creature or planeswalker spells until the end of your next turn. What are we doing with this, Jerry? Dude, I, I mean, that's no a power. That's a me. powerful effect. I, I, I can't tell you. I can't tell you where we're trying to do it. I mean, like leveraging that window seems very important. Like your opponents not being able to immediately rebuild after your wrath is pretty good. You can't either, I guess. I mean, is this really powerful when you have? Teferi on the battlefield and this is your wrath probably but in general if you have a Teferi on the battlefield and get to wrath you don't care that it has this additional clause on it like you're just in a very good spot anyway and of course we have a four mana wrath and this is not a pure wrath they get to keep one threat and if it's a large threat it's not going to work for you so kind of low on this card I don't see a specific role for it yet I will admit though there could be something I'm missing because it's unique and I think especially shutting out casting of spells on the next turn, that might be exploitable. I'll think about it some more, but as of right now, I don't know exactly what we're doing with single combat. So what if you have a planeswalker like Teferi, or I, I want to think of like a four-man example, like something that makes a token or whatever. Mm-hmm. You cast single combat, you keep your planeswalker, they keep a make creature. A you make a token a block or like Teferi minus on their thing. They basically can't cast stuff on their next turn, like nothing that's going to like rebuild their board position and put pressure on you, whatever. And then mm-hmm. you get to untap with counter magic open. So like they get the first window to actually rebuild, but presumably you're just going to have your man open to be able to answer what they do. So I could see situations like that. And if there's a matchup where like, you know, you have your four to fairy one Kaya deck against a deck that has 12 planeswalkers or whatever, like this is a good, just kind of like emergency button for decks like that. Right. Sure. Like, yeah. You, super friend style decks. Yeah. Yeah, and we're we're talking about like Flux Channeler and there's like the landfall proliferate thing. Like 
maybe these are going to be decks. I don't know, but you have a way to answer like multiple planeswalkers at once, which could be useful. Could be. I think that the play pattern you're talking about, it's just like, it's certainly powerful, but it was already powerful. Like the play pattern of planeswalker, my planeswalker survives into wrath is, I mean, that's like the dream. If you're controlling a planeswalker and you're of side course, of the battlefield. Of course. So I don't think it's a huge upgrade, but the planeswalker thing is good. And like we said, there's some real planeswalkers here. I talked a bit about ignite the beacon in my article and propose some super friends lists. So I don't know if those are going to catch on or not, but certainly if they do, here's a great response. Yeah. So I, I was mostly happy about the second scenario where if Esper needs a way to kill a deck that has a bunch of planeswalkers, like this is it. Right. But okay. in the scenario where even you're playing against uh mono white aggro or something, at least, you just have a turn where they don't get to cast stuff, right? It's like you get to wrath and time walk them basically. Yeah. A little bit of a reprieve. So kind of a weird one, uh, but like tragic arrogance was also a weird one that just ended up kind of being busted, you know? Yeah. And obviously there are a lot of ways, there are a lot of ways to like break the synergies on that, but it like even just reading the card the first time, it wasn't immediately apparent. And there were some format contextual things that made it really good too but this is one of those things where it's like this this might just be like stone cold killer in some matchup at some point yeah i think you brought up a really good point and format concerns and if the format becomes all about planeswalkers this is an important tool that we usually don't have access to you usually can't clean up a bunch of planeswalkers at once keep in mind there's a bunch of cheaper cheaper planeswalkers as well so you could go three drop four drop five drop planeswalker and it not look that silly uh whereas in the past you were probably playing some absurd mana base to make that happen so uh yeah good good check valve i would say yep so onto the gold cards we have domry's ambush which is awkwardly a sorcery but uh rg (laughs) put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control then that creature deals damage equal to its power to target creature or planeswalker you don't control so this is kind of similar to uh chandra's outrage type of stuff where this is just a strict creature removal card which is not necessarily dead against things like esper control i do think that this card is like pretty medium and there are things like thrash threat i think that do a a slightly better job than this but overall this card's kind of cool this card is our generation's whippoorwill and i will not stand for it domri's ambush how is that possibly a sorcery it feels like the version of a creature that clearly has wings that does not have flying. I will play this as an instant and look like an idiot and there's nothing I can do about it. I already know it's happening despite having this conversation because I'm going to read the card like a big dumb idiot and be like, oh, ambush and try and play it on my opponent's turn and it's not going to work out for me. I think this is a fine option to have, but I, I don't understand how this naming convention ever happens. So check this out, right? You have uh, things like Kasali Ambusher, I think. Those like the 2-3 the flash. Mm-hmm. So Ambush on a creature makes sense for the thing to have flash. Right. But Ambush on a sorcery kind of makes sense because it just like sits in your hand until you play it. And then it's like, ah, surprise, I, I had a spell or whatever. I, I think that could be what they're going for. I don't know, man. Maybe, you don't it's believe also possible. a word of what you're saying right now. And I can tell you're saying it, but <laughs> you don't actually feel it in your heart. Devil's advocate. Devil's advocate. Yeah, that's what I thought. All right. Living Twister. RRG. 2-5. <laughs> Just everything about this card is ridiculous. <laughs> Elemental. 1-R. Discard a land card. This deals two damage to any target. G, return a tapped land you control to its owner's hand. 
So I just brought the hate for Domri's ambush. I'm going to bring the love for this card. I, I made you talk about it just because I don't actually believe this card is like meaningful and constructed. You could find some fringe uses. I just think this is a really cool card. It reminds me of old magic cards in that it's weird and quirky and still like kind of powerful in the right situation. And I just think it's really fun. And I wanted to give this card a shout out. More cards like Living Twister, please. That's all I have to say. It's so weird. I, I know yes. that Sam Black is going to build around this card like some mending of <laughs> Dominaria crap, sure, right? Sure, of course. And I, I don't think it'll be broken or anything, but hey, you know, good luck to anyone who tries to to build around this card. No, I, I don't see how it goes off, but you know, if you're in the market for a big body, that 2-5 body, we know for is kind of a break point where we have Lava Coil in the format. This blocks a bunch of things really well. If there exists a red-green mid-range deck, maybe Living Twister gets a little bit of run. And then just end of the game, you throw a bunch of lands at your opponent. I mean, maybe this card is just deceptively powerful and we're sleeping on it because it does have that late-game fireball capability. It's expensive for sure, but things like this have found success in the past. But like I said, it feels like a relic of another age. Like this is a card I would have expected in like apocalypse or something i don't know so <laughs> i like the shout out to an old style of magic card uh, i'm not quite ready to call it constructed playable yet but i'll look into it i, I think it's an, it's got enough going on where it's worth exploring well it's basically three mana second land deal two damage right pretty much yeah which is, which not, is bad. not bad I, I mean i guess if you're doing like the wayward sword tooth experimental frenzy thing like i guess this fits into that sort of but okay yeah a little bit I don't know, man. All right. Uh, on to other non-gruel gold cards. We have Rails Outburst. Two UR instance. This deals three damage to any target. Look at the top two cards of your library. Put one into your hand and the other into your graveyard. Whew. I'm, I'm fanning myself down over here, Jerry. You got to give me a second. You talk. I got to compose myself. This this one is nice, right? Like, Yeah. This so, one's real nice. So, so four mana is a lot, and... Prophetic Bolt saw a lot of play back in the day, primarily in block constructed, but some amount of standard play. Obviously, this is not the same thing. Like the card selection is not huge. You're paying four mana for three damage, which is also not huge because for four mana, you want like a Vraska's Contempt type of thing. But I mean, this is a very clean two for one. It goes upstairs. It uh, damages Planeswalkers. And there's some graveyard synergy stuff. There's synergy with uh, Frilled Mystic, which I wrote about earlier. And I don't know. I, I want this card to be good because this is exactly like the type of magic I want to be playing. But yeah, four mana is a lot. It tends to be like a choke point for a lot of these decks. Let me introduce you to a card, which was my number one card from my last set. It is called Wilderness Reclamation. It ensures you always have a lot of mana, and it benefits greatly from an ability to get into your deck and look for specific things. Rael's Outburst plays perfectly with that kind of strategy, and you have to certainly build around this card. And I don't think you just jam four in your deck and you're like safe with that, but having this as a one or two of in uh, these kind of decks and getting that kind of card selection while still being able to clean up a problematic threat uh, it's going to do a lot. And I love the fact that this can go towards Planeswalkers as well. I think that's what really sells it in my eyes. Because you get into spots where like Teferi bounce your Wilderness Reclamation. Now you have another out to that. Uh, and you just to pick off that Teferi and go grab your Wilderness Reclamation on the next turn, which is really, really cool. So I like this card a lot. I think it merits small amounts of play. 
I wish it merited a lot of play. It was just something that like control decks could be built around. I don't think that's the world we live in. I think it's a little bit too expensive, but it's going to be a nice one or two of in a bunch of decks. Sweet. All right. We have Feather the Redeemed, R-Dub-Dub, Legendary Creature Angel, 3-4, Flying. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell that targets a creature you control, exile that card instead of putting it into your graveyard as it resolves. If you do, return it to your hand at the beginning of the next end step. So you get to rebuy like Dive Downs and Integrities and Colossus. Like, is there anything that I'm just blatantly missing? So this card has caused a buyout on Aurelia's Fury. I think this is incredibly stupid. Yes. <laughs> this is kind of the state of things right now, where if you can find a silly interaction like that, uh, a card will spike out of nowhere. So there's one thing you're missing, probably because you're a reasonable human being. So keep doing that. But yeah, the dive down interaction is really cool. Pump spells certainly going to be interesting. And just a good body here. If you're already in the market for this mana base where you're reliably casting this card, 3-4 Flyer, very, very nice stats. And I don't think you want to work too hard for Feather. You just want it to kind of work into things you already have going on. Maybe Naya with Collision Colossus really gets a lot of mileage out of this. We'll have to see. Tough mana base there. But I think this is just a good card on rate. I think if you're working really hard to exploit it, you're probably not doing the right thing. You're just supposed to play a 3-4 flyer that's already pretty good and uh, find a couple cards you're happy targeting Feather with and call it a day. Yeah, a lot of competition at the three mana slot, at least right now for Boros, because you have things like Tajik and History of Benalia. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the mana for Naya, I don't think is that bad, but it, it would be easier if this was like Wooly Thoktar instead of uh, R-Dub-Dub, right? Sure. Because you have like Flower Flourish and stuff like that that can actually help fix your mana and whatever. I don't know. I, I think this card is reasonable, probably will not see play, but... It's It's got a little bit of that feel to it, right? Like a cool card that has all the numbers, but just doesn't quite do enough and is competing against some really good stuff. So yeah, I I could see it missing. It's a three mana creature that doesn't give you any immediate value. Mm -hmm. And historically hard sell. Yeah, that generally fails my litmus test for me. Other Boros card, we have Solar Blaze, 2R Dub, Sorcery. Each creature deals damage to itself equal to its power, and I think this is a pretty reasonable sideboard card for any sort of boros deck. Yeah, maybe this is just the Wrath effect they've been looking for. Having it at 4 mana is a pretty big deal. Usually, if you're in the market for this, though, I think Deafening Clarion is going to be better. Like, it's... A mana cheaper, it'll mostly clear up what you're trying to clear up. That's not always true. You can think of some circumstances where you're better off going with Solar Blaze. Obviously, against like big green decks and Steel Leaf Champion decks, you'll be incentivized to go in this direction if you can't just overcome them on the battlefield, which is obviously most Boros decks' preference. Um, sometimes that's not, that's not realistic, though, and it'll be good to have Solar Blaze as a sideboard option in those cases. Yep. On to Simic, we have Neoform. G-U sorcery as an additional cost to cast the spell, sacrifice a creature. Search your library for a creature card with CMC equal to one plus the sacrifice creature's converted mana cost. Put that card onto the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on it, then shuffle your library. Notably, does not exile. Uh, the uh, additional cost of sacking the creature means that it's very bad against counter spells, but overall, I think this is a cool toy for people to play with. Yeah, kind of a mini Eldritch evolution, and I think that this is potentially 
modern playable in all the same decks you're doing Eldritch Evolution stuff, trying to get those combos set up very quickly. This could function as additional copies of Vanifar. We keep seeing Vanifar decks attempted. And the problem is if you don't have Vanifar, you just have a bunch of weirdo creatures that aren't really doing anything. Uh, this leans into kind of making sure you always have access to that card, which is a nice little consistency boost. This is a powerful effect. We've seen this a bunch before. We know this tutoring ability is generally very good and you're getting a little buff on your creature as well. So this needs to pick its spots. It needs to pick its decks very carefully, but if you can find the right home for it, I am convinced this is certainly constructed playable, probably modern playable as well. Yep. Uh, next up, we have Merfolk Skydiver, GU11 creature, Merfolk Mutant, flying. When this enters the battlefield, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control, and you can pay three GU to proliferate. Merfolk confirmed tier one. This is all it needed. It's got Skydiver now. <laughs> Good game. Pack it in. No, but this is a fine card for that deck, and I, the proliferating thing kind of fits with what it does. Putting the plus one, plus one counter on your Benthic Biomancer is nice. Nice little option for that deck, and we'll see if you can really push the proliferate strategies particularly hard. A Mana Sink, not something that deck is going to be sad to have access to. So while I think that deck is squarely in the tier 2.5 range as it sits right now, it only needs a little boost here or there, and maybe Merfolk Skydiver is just the mana engine it's been looking for all this time. You can also just put the counter on itself. So add it sure, on, two, two on flyer, its very floor. Nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a gay sky folk that you know can be carnival or whatever, but uh, it's still pretty reasonable. No, I think so. And then late game, even if that's your only plus one plus one counter, you get a eternally growing two two flyer. You know where this is a top deck in situations where you've already generated a bunch of mana, you'll be pretty happy to see it. So yeah, good little inclusion for the Merfolk deck. I don't think it really goes beyond that. You're going to have to take advantage of some tribal synergies or be like a dedicated proliferate deck, but there's probably better ways to do that than using Merfolk Skydiver. Agreed. On to Selesnia, we have Tulsimir, Friend to Wolves, two, GG Dub, five mana total, three, three, legendary creature, elf scout. When this enters the battlefield, create uh, a legendary three, three, green and white wolf creature, Voja? I don't know. Yeah. No, you got it. Voja okay. Friend Elves, I think. All right. Whenever a wolf enters the battlefield under your control, you gain three life, and you may have that creature fight up to one target creature and opponent controls. This was changed to a you may? Is is that accurate? Uh, I believe so. when, when they initially previewed it, they must have done it with an old version of the card text, um, yeah. and it didn't have the may clause, which is weird. I'm not sure how, exactly how that happens, but yeah, now it stands as a may ability, which I think is uh, a pretty big upgrade, quite frankly. Yeah, so... Basically, no matter what, five mana, you're getting two three threes. Uh, you gain three life, and you can take out a smaller creature. So, like, really on rate, this is not that bad. Yeah, this is like numbers the card. There's a bunch of numbers on it, and the numbers all balance to something that's pretty good. It's like a quasi-Siege Rhino-type setup thing. I mean, I, I know it's a little bit hyperbolic to compare it to a card that defined the format, but it feels like it has a lot going on, and a lot of the same card advantage type things where the card advantage is its effect on the battlefield, as opposed to doing three damage, you're just going to take out a smaller creature. So in a world where you have ample targets to pick off, there's a bunch of two twos running around or meaningful one ones. Tulsimir seems really, really good just on pure numbers. But even when you're just like wanting to put six power on the battlefield, 
five mana really isn't a bad rate for that. And you're getting plus three life. I mean, unless I'm missing something, this card seems to check all the boxes of just a card that is on its face, rate worthy and demands some inclusion in a few spots. Now it's competing with like Tristani Discordant, which is its own super powerful effect. But this is different, and this trend's a little bit more aggressive, not quite as go-wide, more self-contained threats, more of a mid-range deck as opposed to a tokens deck. So we'll have to see if the pieces are there for Naya mid-range to become a thing again. Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, worth noting, I think that this kind of like Tristani's, th- these cards always fail to perform against decks like Esper Control because of the prevalence of their sweepers. So mm-hmm. this is a card that I look at as like a mid-range breaker or like something that's pretty good against like mono red, mono white. Uh, obviously pretty bad against like mono blue just because it's a five mana sorcery. And like you mentioned with Tristani, there's a lot of competition and Vivian Reed is just another one. Lyra Dawnbringer. Right. Right. There's so many, there's just a ton of stuff. Uh, And I actually like that. I think it's cool that we have a lot of options now. Like they're just giving us a bunch of playable cards and they're just like, you figure it out. Right. Because what that contributes to is churn and churn is the best friend of any good standard format it means that some weeks Tristani will be absolutely correct some weeks Lyra will be correct and some weeks Tulsimir will be correct and the way you get an edge going into a tournament is identify which of those weeks you're presently sitting in it really rewards careful study of the metagame and knowing exactly which option you're supposed to use on a given week and I like that I like that a lot yeah or just ask Nick Prince sure why not he knows which green white cards to play on any given week he'll let you know yep uh, on a Golgari, we have Death Sprout. One BBG instant. Destroy target creature. Search your library for a basic land card. Put it on the battlefield tapped. Then shuffle your library. Uh, I mean, this is nice. You're never going to hear me talk bad about this card. I I don't know that it solves any problems that any deck was having. I don't know that Soltai sees this as an upgrade for what it's presently doing. Like, obviously, it benefits from more mana with Hydroid Crisis present. So can you play, can you afford to play this over something like Vraska's Contempt? It depends very much on the format. It sounds like what we were just talking about, where you need to know what exactly you're up against. I think the safer option is going to be Contempt in a vacuum. And I think in a lot of spots, you'll get punished pretty hard for waiting for your creature removal to come online on turn four. So I don't know that Death Sprout's going to be a widespread inclusion. I think the idea of something like Soltai Reclamation makes this card pretty exciting where you're simultaneously ramping and answering threats, trying to build to your Nexus of Fate turns. I really like that idea, but I don't know if that's a real deck, and I don't know if that's something we need to be exploring. Time will tell. And this is a cool card, 100%. The art's amazing. I love that it exists. I just don't know where it slots right now. Maybe you're supposed to just build around it. Who knows? Yeah, this this strikes me as more of like the creatureless mid-range deck, or you know, creature light. I don't know if you want to count Hydroid Crisis as... A creature or not, because that's like the obvious payoff card for stuff like this. Right. Again, you know, like treasure map type of stuff. But this this seems like the type of card that would have been good in like the Hour of Promise decks from a couple seasons ago. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, last gold card, we have Storev Dev Karen Lich. Probably butchered it. One BBG, 5-4 uh, legendary creature, zombie elf wizard, trample. Whenever this deals combat damage to a player or planeswalker, return to your hand, target creature or planeswalker card in your graveyard that wasn't put there this combat. God, that's wordy. A lot of words. A lot of interesting words. Good size body. 5-4 trample for 4 mana sounds pretty good to me. 
I, I think four mana is about the break point where you can play a que- creature that doesn't have immediate impact on the battlefield and get away with it. So story of like the last chance to get something like that in. And is its effect good enough? Well, that depends what you've done in the early game. Are you trading off things like Jade Light Rangers and buying those cards back and then able to make a successful attack with Storov? Maybe. It seems pretty plausible to me that that's the setup. I like that you can still attack Planeswalkers and still get the ability. I find that that's often a very difficult decision point, and this kind of eliminates that. And you can argue for that being a good or a bad thing. In this instance, I like trying it out seems interesting because Storev is kind of just sitting right on that fringe of is it going to be good enough or not and I don't think we know the answer yet I don't know that this is displacing anything presently in the Golgari list like they most of the cards in that deck have pretty clearly defined roles and this is just like a value card which makes me a little hesitant to be like slam dunk it's going in the deck Uh, but we'll see maybe it's for like attrition matchups where you have to trade off a lot of permanence and you get to the late game and you just need that one threat that'll snowball the game store does a nice job of that it does absolutely snowball but even comparing this to like golgari fine broker or whatever it's just like i i'm not sure that this is any amount better than that card that already exists and that people aren't playing well i think like situations where you're trying to present a faster clock this obviously gets a nod or situations where you're like relying on a single threat and then protecting that threat to win the game so setups where you have things like maybe thought erasure in your deck or extra copies of disruption or you know maybe you're a blue deck with access to negate and you're using that to protect your creature if you're confident that story is going to remain on the battlefield then it seems like an upgrade but default I agree with your perception that getting the comes into play trigger worth a lot. Busted limited card. That's about oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to play against this one ever. Uh, on to the hybrids. We have some kind of sweet planeswalkers. First up, we have Dovin, Hand of Control, 2H, where H is either a white or blue mana. Legendary planeswalker, Dovin, five starting loyalty. Artifact, instant, and sorcery spells your opponents cast. Costs one more to cast and minus one until your next turn. Prevent all damage that would be dealt to and dealt by target permanent and opponent controls. What am I doing with this card? I don't understand. I mean, the two clauses seem very discordant to me. I can think of one set of matchups where the first is going to matter a lot, and it's certainly not matchups where the minus one is going to matter. So that's weird to me. Is this like a turbo fog card? Are we supposed to be playing it there and just negating a single big threat for a bunch of turns and gaining some theoretical uh, life with Dovin's presence on the battlefield. I I really don't know what this card is designed to accomplish. I want to explore it. It seems powerful enough. Like in a world where an opponent is leaning on basically one big single threat and you can just minus it for five turns. I mean, this is basically a removal spell with upside where they're getting valued at the same time. So we'll have to see if that's a real thing that matters in this format or not. I can't even give you, if you were asking me to rate this card, it could be anywhere from like three out of 10 to a solid seven. I I honestly have no idea. I think Dovin is not great, but the one matchup that I could see it actually doing work is against Mono Blue, where you are taxing their instance, which I think is a pretty reasonable deal. And then uh, the minus handles like a thing with Curious Obsession on it for at least a little bit. But even then, it's just like you could... You could do so much better with three mana, I think. Probably not living for all that long in that matchup either where they have a lot of bodies and tend to go a little bit wider. Yeah, right. it's it's a weird card for sure. Maybe it's just designed to uh, fuel 
limited control decks. We'll have to see. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, next up, we have Is It uh, Sahili Sublime Artificer 1HH Legendary Planeswalker Sahili 5 starting loyalty. Whenever you cast a non creature spell, create a 1 1 colorless servo artifact creature token. And minus two, target artifact you control becomes a copy of another target artifact or creature you control until end of turn, except it's an artifact in addition to its other types. This is what I'm talking about. So you're going to have to clue me in why. People seem very high in this card. I think it's interesting. I think it's fine. But I'm seeing talk of this being played in like Legacy. Are, are you that on board with Sahili right now? No, no. Okay. Uh, this is... This is just like a, a very medium young pyromancer, but like for for these three mana hybrid planeswalkers, I think this card's pretty sweet. So where do you see the slotting? What style of deck are you looking to deploy Sahelian? I don't know. We we build new decks, man. Uh, this this also uh, works with just any non creature, right? So it it's fine with artifacts. So if you want to do like a Psy, Sahili, maybe Tezzeret type of thing, like this is a card that potentially slots into that deck. Okay, that's a good look. And I wrote about Tezzeret decks over on Star City today. And there I used an infinite loop uh, relying on a creature, unfortunately, in Guardians of Corleo. So no effect there. But maybe there's some other setups you could do with Tezzeret where you can use uh, Sahili as opposed to Psy. And that might be a little bit better. Planeswalker is historically a harder thing to attack than a creature. Uh, so we'll have to explore what we can accomplish there for sure. Yeah, just an interesting card, though. I mean, as, as far as like a Murmuring Mystic or Young Pyromancer type of thing, it's it's certainly less good because it can just get attacked. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think that Sahili's effect is powerful. And even if you're just like bringing that in out of the sideboard of Drake's against Esper or whatever, I think it's pretty strong. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting application. Uh, looking for this Nahiri. All right. So we have Nahiri storm of stone two H H where H is red or white mana legendary planeswalker Nahiri six starting loyalty. As long as it's your turn creatures you control have first strike and equip abilities. You activate costs one less to activate. I don't see a lot of equipment in this set. No, there does not exist a lot of equipment. The only thing I think this does, I think this is actually a pretty bad card. The only thing I think this does is possibly enable some combos where you reduce an equip cost down to zero. And then you can like, what's the champion's card that has the zero equip cost? And you would use it in conjunction with like. Sure, uh, sure. So, so there's, there's stupid combos based on targeting something with a piece of equipment over and over. Nihiri is another potential way to get to those combos, but. I don't know, man. That's, that seems like a lot of reaching. And uh, on the whole, this, again, feels like a limited removal spell. And I don't know how often those equipabilities are really going to get reduced. That's just not a big part of standard presently. So uh, odd card, to be sure. Yeah, so the last part is minus X. This deals X damage to target tap creature. So maybe you get to take out, like you get to take out a big thing, potentially. And then creatures you control have first strike on your turn, which is kind of cool. But pretty unlikely that you get to snipe two things with this because of the tapped clause. So yeah, just a, a weird card, but really not that bad for just a four mana removal spell. I'm going to stop you for a second. Jonathan just messaged me and said, if you haven't recorded yet, you can get ahead of the swaths of MTG players complaining about every PT competitor getting their opponent's deck list. They just announced that they're going to give deck lists before each match. Oh yeah. I think we got an email. 
There has been overwhelming positive feedback on live coverage of Matic tournaments that use deckless overlay like the one produced by Cardboard Live. Based on this feedback, we'll be adding a Cardboard Live extension for our Twitch coverage of the Mythic Championship in London so viewers can see the modern deckless of players playing on camera. After speaking to a number of players, we have decided that all players, not just feature match players, will have access to their opponent's modern deckless before playing each round. As a result, the following will be true for Modern Decklists at MC London, starting with round five, the second round of Modern. Each player will have a copy of their own decklist. It will have complete information for the main deck. For sideboards, it will only list the name of cards, no quantities. Prior to each match, players will exchange decklists and have one minute to review the opponent's decklist. No notes may be made during this review. You may not use an electronic device to take photo after one minute is complete. Decklist handed back to their owners. So I kind of hate this. Basically, they've they've done a lot of things, uh, just like organized play in general, to deter scouting for pro tours. And you know, th- the reason for that is not really applicable here because it was like the people who had like these networks of teams with 20 people would just know who their random like PTQ winner opponent was playing. Uh, and like what deck they're playing and everything. And that person would basically like not know. Uh, so it created like this unfair advantage. And now basically everyone knows. And to stop the scouting stuff, I don't know. It, it just seemed like it, it created like a more level playing field where you sat down to play someone and you didn't know what deck they were playing. And that made the tournament kind of like fun and exciting, right? It's like, especially with this, this London Mulligan stuff. And like when, when I was testing blue red Phoenix, I I came into these situations a lot where I would have like a surgical in my opener after I mulled the six or whatever. And it's like, do I bottom or top it? And it's like, that's like a reasonable decision. Now that's just kind of like out the window. Like you just, you don't have a choice basically. Like, you know, whether or not you're supposed to keep like this really weird narrow card or whatever, even if it's like, you know, do I keep a lightning bolt and my opponent ends up playing like some creatureless deck or whatever? So I don't know. I, I think that this this is a drastic change towards how the tournament is actually going to feel and play out. And it is a big change. And they already basically have like two big changes with like a pre-release for the limited portion and uh the the new London Mulligan rule for for modern. And I think that you know, the mulligan rule is like this whole other thing, which could just be crazy and very, very bad for the format, but we'll see. So I don't know. This It just seems like they're making a, a lot of changes. It's introducing too many variables, I think. At the end of the Pro Tour, I don't think they're going to know like what worked and what didn't. As, as far as like, you know, trying to assist coverage and making that better for people, like, yeah, I agree with that. Like that, that should just be a thing that happens. But I don't know. Maybe it should be an opt-in thing for like, Hey, do you want to get a feature match to rep your sponsors and team and brand and everything like that? Like, if so, we're going to po- post at least like your main deck on on the coverage thing, you know. And I th- I think that is a thing that most people would just opt into, especially if you're on a bigger team. Like, you're likely going to get scouted at some point, you know. I agree with you on the noise. I think like it's very clear that there's a lot of things changing. And I would prefer if we're able to analyze them on a one-for-one basis. But at the same time, I keep having this crisis because obviously I'm intimately involved with the coverage of Paper Magic. And I keep asking myself, why? Like, why is this going to continue to exist? What is better about Paper 
than arena coverage. And a lot of it is the existence of older formats, modern legacy, obviously going to have to play a huge role in the existence of televised paper magic going forward. But there also has to be some catch up played. And I think this is a huge upgrade to the viewer experience. And I know it's a downgrade to tournament experience. You'll never hear me advocate that this is just fine and not meaningful. And it's absolutely a big change from the way things have been done for years and years and years. But you got to close that gap somehow. And you have to keep people engaged in paper magic. And to do so, it's going to require some concessions. And is this the best way to make those concessions? I don't know. But we're trying and we're trying to keep Paper Magic in line and trying to get some of those things that worked really well at the Mythic Invitational weaved into Paper Magic coverage. So I feel for the competitors, if I was participating in this tournament, maybe my stance would be totally different. Who knows? But as it stands right now, I am happy they're attempting something and we'll see how it works out. I'm, I'm willing to give them a lot more rope presently in Paper Magic because they have shown a capability to deliver with their digital initiatives. And maybe now that's the spark they needed to translate some of the things that work in that environment, in that venue, and apply them to the paper game to ensure that paper stays an important part of Magic going forward. Yeah, but they could do that with only the feature matches, right? Because you already had those situations where it's like, hey, we want to record some deck decks. Like, is it okay if you know we publish this on Friday when the tournament's still happening or like early Saturday when the tournament's still happening? And you will find plenty of people with cool decks who will opt into that. And I think you'll find plenty of people who are willing to have their deck list posted just to be able to participate in a feature match when they're doing well, you know? And obviously no, you're, at you're some right. point- you, you lose some of the tournament story if you do that, right? Like if the top players in the tournament all opt out, like that's a big part of covering the tournament effectively is saying who's winning and losing. And if you never see the person sitting in first place because they say, I don't want to participate and give my deck list out, I think that's a huge loss. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I guess they could even, I mean, so right now they're saying everyone has to show their deck list, right? They could say, if we call you for a feature match, we are going to post your deck list and you can't really opt out of the feature match or whatever. And I I think that that's like kind of reasonable. Obviously it puts those people at sort of an unfair advantage, but Mm -hmm. it, it does kind of even out because there's, you know, X amount of other people getting feature matches too. And if you're getting a feature match, it probably means that you're doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. And let's, let's be real. Like it's, it's modern, right? Like, it's not, it's not like your deck, your, your deck is not going to be like anything fancy or whatever. Showing the sideboards is kind of nonsense. So I understand why they show you just like the cards, but then that creates like this weird, stupid sub game where it's like, yeah, I'm going to play <laughs> right, one, one blood moon in my sideboard and hope that you board like I have three or whatever. Um, so, what about the argument that if London Mulligan pushes things towards being more degenerate, this is a push back to stability because knowing you're up against that degenerate deck, you can adjust your mulliganing and sideboarding decisions appropriately. I mean, again, this is a whole new game and this whole snowball of decisions, but like, I I do think there's some merit to that way of thinking. Well, what you should do is actually try and make it so the format is not degenerate, right? And in a perfect, either that means that you're banning things like right of flame, or you are not allowing like these Gorios vengeance decks to have the London mulligan, like whatever it takes to just, not have it be like, oh, well, in order to equalize this, we have to like tell people that you're playing a graveyard deck or whatever. 
I just think right. that's kind of dumb. No, I understand. So I, I don't know. This this is a big change. I, I get that it is meant to help coverage, but it is a drastic fundamental shift for the tournament. And part of the fun for me is like, you know, sitting down, looking at my opener and being like, okay, if I have four spot removal cards, is this a hand that I can reasonably keep against a random opponent? And then, you know, you slowly right. figure out what deck your opponent's playing and then you have to figure out strategies on the fly. Now it's like you sit down, you look at their list, and it's like, okay, I know exactly what hands to keep. And you get to start thinking about like your sideboarding strategy immediately. It's like you're not really in this pressure time crunch. And I enjoy that. Like I like the pressure and just having, you know, the extra 20 minutes or whatever to think about how I'm going to sideboard against my opponent is just kind of absurd. I mean, I guess it's only like, you know, five or 10 minutes, but still. No, I, I agree with you. I can't make a good faith argument that this is not materially affecting gameplay and changing things. Like I said, I'm willing to give more rope for improvements on the coverage side, but you're you're right. This is going to make a big change in the way the games are played. It makes a big change in the experience. We'll just have to see if it's worth it. We'll have to see if it's enough payoff. But uh, the point I can't get away from is your, your very, very correct statement that there are a lot of variables being altered simultaneously and it's making it very hard to filter out <laughs> what is actually influencing various things in gameplay. So uh, we'll, we'll have to see how this all goes. I am interested as a viewer, I'll say that I'll definitely be watching, but I, I do feel in some ways for people who are having to participate in this pro tour, especially, you know, friends like Nick Prince, who is playing his first pro tour and these are the circumstances under which he's doing so it's like wow that's kind of crazy this is this is honestly like probably the worst pt or mythic championship whatever that you could play in as your first one because it is so weird and so different you know before you could like you know study and read articles and figure out things and now it's just like yeah you're you're just kind of screwed because everyone else with like these big testing teams are going to be able to like figure out these things and how they matter. And now this is just not even like a magic tournament. I will say my first PT was an extended PT where they literally fundamentally changed the extended format like a month before and cut off something like, I don't even know half the sets, which would have been legal. And I had been testing for a month and a half at that point and was like, Oh, we're just not playing this format anymore. Okay. So that one was brutal too, but I still think this takes the cake over that particular PT. Yeah, this is weird. I don't know. This this is definitely going to alter my deck list, like either main deck sideboard or both. Like, for example, if I was playing Blue Red Phoenix, one of the things that I was considering doing was like playing uh, maybe a, a Spell Pierce or two main deck because it's good in your bad matchups and they likely mm-hmm. won't see it coming, right? But sure. now it's just like, okay, well, they're going Saw to know that I have Spell Pierce. Yeah. yeah. So now now do I just like play one and like, you know, hope they Force either play, play around, around it. it. They either play around it too much or don't play around it enough or whatever. It's like I would rather just like have the thing and have it be a surprise value type of thing. And you, no, you get the, the same stuff with like the sideboarding strategies too, where it's like, oh, what hate card do they have? Okay, now I know exactly how to sideboard. Right. Which planeswalker? That matters a lot too. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's very weird. Anyway, uh, we can talk about the last card, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Mobilized District, a land. Taps for colorless. You can pay four to make Mobilized District a 3-3 creature with vigilance until end of turn. It's still a land. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature and planeswalker you control. This card's tight. 
Yeah, this is cool. Obviously, I love creature lands. I think they are an interesting part of the format. Usually they re- they lead to a lot of interesting decisions. I like the way this upgrades over time. It's tough to play. Uh, a lot of decks are going to have a hard time bearing the cost of a colorless land, but those who can might get a very cheap activation on this card. Each legendary creature and planeswalker you control. That's a little strange. I don't know. Why not just shout out like legendary cards? That seems a little bit cleaner, but ultimately it's whatever. And I have a feeling this if this is good, it's just going to be good on its face. Like paying four for a 3-3 will be fine. And in a lot of cases it is. That's just the fine land to have access to. So. Yeah, completely reasonable. This this will likely see play in a decent amount of spots. Like colorless is not great, especially since you know we're we're in Ravnica land. It's like all two colors and three colors, and we basically only have the eight dual lands. And right. the we're we're also seeing like a lot of like you know cards like feather, where it's like R dub dub or whatever. So playing a colorless land is a real cost, but. Uh, I mean, if if you actually get to have utility in your mana base, that is huge. I'm with you. All right. Kind of a a weird episode where we just get like bombarded with news. But I guess we will go on to our question. As always, we pick a question from the uh, fine people in our Discord who are all patrons. We pick the question we like the most to answer, and then we'll send the the person whose question we picked a couple packs of game podcast sleeves as a reward for, you know, helping to make our content better. Yeah, and I'll, I'm going to cut you off for a second here, and it's, it's time we give a good hearty thank you to our patrons one more time. You know, as we do these broadcasting gigs with SCG, we get to meet so many of them, and folks come up and introduce themselves all the time. And they're universally such good people who are so appreciative and thankful and supportive of everything we do. Can't tell you how many people, just like as I walk by in the hallway, shout out real quick. Thanks so much for the content. Really appreciate it. Those things mean the world to us. Your support means the world to us. It affects me every single day. You make my life better every single day by supporting this podcast. And I just want to say thank you right now. No, I, I appreciate you saying that. I feel the exact same way and it does not get said enough for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could say it every single week and it wouldn't get old. Know that we're thinking it every single week for sure. So our question this week comes from Mason Clark and Mason asks, what do you want to see out of the MPL? Watsi has basically done nothing with them outside of the streaming contracts and the Invitational. I, I think this is a more reasonable question for you to answer than me, considering I have sort of a stake in this. Right. Your answer is like, I want them to just back up trucks of money to the MPL players and just dump no. them on them so they can swim like Scrooge McDuck around in them. And no, no, I know you would never take that stance. For me, the MPL is meaningless. I mean, it hasn't done anything yet. It's just a replacement for platinum, essentially, except with more benefits and more access to tournaments, which is good. That's great. It was important to have this set of players, which are well taken care of, well provided for, and able to play Magic professionally. It's very important. This group exists, but I do not know what the MPL is. Still, this far along. I, I mean, when was this announced? Do you, you should know better than me. We have to be going on five months now, right? I signed my contract December 6th. So that, okay. that is basically when I knew what was happening. And then they announced it maybe a week later or something. Okay, five months. We have now had the MPL in existence. And we 
don't know what the league part of Magic Pro League is. We have no information, no specificity. I don't know if you have something you're not able to talk about, Jerry, but all I know is that me, as a interested viewer, all I know is that these MPL are a group of identified players. I don't know what they're going to be doing besides playing every tournament. And how is that possible? How is there nothing said? If if there was no plans in place to use this Magic Pro League, don't announce it. Just sit on it for a little while. Or don't call it a Magic Pro League. Call it some kind of analog to Platinum Professionals. And don't make it sound like there's some additional play component that's going to be coming from it. We don't know how to access the MPL. We don't know how, if you are kicked out of the MPL after a certain length of time. We know nothing. So what I would like to see clarity. I don't think that's too much to ask. I think that's a very reasonable request. Now, five months along in the process, I want to know all the rules of the MPL. I want to know exactly what they're doing. Otherwise, this is just another pro players club. It's a good one. I don't want to sound like I hate the idea of the MPL. It's still very much a step forward for magic as a profession, but you got to give me some details at some point. And it's certainly long enough at this stage. Right. So what would you like to see them do? I think that if the name MPL, Magic Pro League, sets an expectation that these players will be routinely competing against each other with some way to either solidify their status in the MPL or maybe lose their status in the MPL, is is there a league or is there not a league? I wouldn't mind a weekly arena series where these players participate against each other and these matches are commentated over, and it's basically like a weekly broadcast. And it doesn't have to feature every match. Maybe it only features a certain match or the best match of the week, something like that. But some look-in into the MPL that occurs on a regular basis, and then let me know what those players are playing for. And I think that's fine. Otherwise, just call it a pro, pro players club. You didn't have to change the name if it's just a set of benefits. But even if it's a set of benefits, I still think it's reasonable to ask that you tell us how you can achieve those set of benefits. Yeah. And I, I agree with everything that you're saying. And I mean, we had the boot camp back in January and we talked about this a little bit. And I think that they intended for it to kick off in like February or March or whatever. And that is one of the things that's actually in our contract is that we have to play like weekly league matches. And they talked about how to best actually accomplish that and what the stakes would be because if it's just, you know, exhibition matches of like me against BBD or whatever, like are people actually going to watch that? Like we could, we could just stream that, you know? Right. Obviously production value matters a lot, but like it's, it's the stakes for sure. And, you know, there are like these uh, new mythic points, right? Which in mm-hmm. theory is supposed to determine your standing in the MPL. And if you go to like mtgesports.com, it will show you what the ranking of players in the MPL currently is based on how many mythic points they have or whatever. But I, I, I'm kind of in the dark just as much as you are as far as like, what does that actually mean for me? Like, how can I ensure that I am in the MPL again next year if, you know, that's something I'm interested in doing or whatever? And it's like, I don't know. And realistically, they don't know either. And I'm sure as soon as they figure it out, like, you know, they'll they'll let you know or at least let me know. Because, uh, you know, I presumably have to be somewhere playing matches of magic or whatever. But right. I don't know. I th- aside from all that stuff, I do think that they have done a good job of like actually branding it as this is a very specific portion of our pro players. And they've done a lot of stuff like send Brad Nelson and Shahar to like the toy fair or whatever in New York. And doing promotional things like that. And I think that is a good way to actually like utilize the people that you have 
on your payroll as influencers and stuff like that. So totally agree. That stuff is cool to me. And uh, I am actually happy with the amount that that sort of thing was actually happening. Because I, I know there are a few other instances of stuff like that happening that I can't remember off the top of my head. But regardless, I don't know. I, I think all of it is good except for the leak part. And yeah, I would like there to be you know some like weekly content or whatever, something that actually matters with people playing for stakes. And I, I guess at the end of the day, all of it comes down to like, how are people actually going to qualify for the MPL next year? And as far as I know, they don't know yet. So I don't know. I think that has to be a big part of it. Yes, I think that's a huge part of it. And to your, I mean, we're saying the same thing. I know you're not disagreeing with me, but my point is that if you guys were still called platinum pros, they could still be doing all of these things, just better yes. marketing their players. I mean, that that's the whole point is that you set up, you set off a group of players as something special, something unique. They were participating in this magic pro league. And then the entire idea of the magic pro league seems to have evaporated presently. Like, let me ask this question. How do you feel about all of this right now? Like you, as someone who's participating in it, who's in the moment living the MPL, is it disappointing to you that you don't have this sense of clarity? Or are you just grateful that you've been given this opportunity? And does it feel like a little bit, I don't want to say unfair. Does it feel like there's pressure on you to kind of accept what you've been given? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we could dive pretty deep into the uh, post the BBD made on social media like a few weeks ago or months ago, maybe at this point where he felt like there was like an actual divide between him and you know, what were the gold and silver level players or the PTQ players where he, he always felt like, you know, he was just a magic player and like, we we're all in this mm-hmm. together. And and now it is very clear that like a line in the sand has been drawn and he feels like because of people making fun of like hashtag sponsored and a bunch of other reasons, right? Like gold and silver basically dying to fund the MPL and stuff like that, that it, it doesn't feel like he is really welcome, you know, like he is now the 1%. And that means that he's just going to catch a bunch of shit from the people who aren't him. And that sucks. And I would like to see a system exist where that sort of thing doesn't happen. And I did not take the streaming slash influencer contract. So I'm not doing the hashtag sponsored thing. So like, I'm not catching a lot of flack from that. And I'm still like going to these tournaments and, uh, doing like the commentary stuff for the SCG tour and we do the podcast and stuff. So like people are always coming up and talking to us about that sort of stuff. Like it's a reason to, or it's a reason for people to actually come up and engage with us in ways that were normal before the MPL. Right. Whereas right. maybe BPD has a stream or whatever, but for the most part, it just, yeah, it feels like he is very much walled off. And I think a lot of other people feel that way too. And, and that just sucks. I don't think that that was supposed to be the end result to all this. Right. 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 And you feel for BBD too, because obviously someone who loves magic so much and loves interacting with people, you you don't want to be pushed aside like that. It's it's a truly unfortunate, but maybe like somewhat natural result of these distinctions. And you have to wonder if there's a way to achieve the same goals without making it feel so, so separate. I mean, what do you think the odds are that there's an MPL next year? Pretty high, I think. You think they're high? Yeah, I, I think it's very high. Even even with no clarity and no 
statement on how to get there still. We're five months into it. I mean, I don't know when your contract is up, but I'm assuming if you signed it back in December, it would be up in December probably. So we're looking at a period that's about seven, eight months away now. And nobody knows how anyone's going to get there. Well, the the way I kind of think about it is that this has probably been in the works for at least six months, probably more. And they're still figuring things out as they go. And obviously, like the Mythic Invitational was like a pretty big part of it. And now it seems like esports stuff is a go. And it that probably reflects positively on the MPL and its existence. So mm-hmm. I think like this year might just be figuring stuff out. And then if we get to the point at the end of the year where it's like, oh, they finally figured it out, obviously, they're just going to run it back next year. You know, it's like you don't waste like... Right. 12 no, months right. of, of everyone's bandwidth and then just like scrap it because they're not going to have a better system, right? They've been focusing all their time on trying to figure out how to make the MPL work. So right. I think it's yeah. it's like it's over 90 that it's going to exist again next year in some form. Okay. I don't want to come off overly negative. I think so much of this new era of magic has been successful. You know, we were just here last week basically showering praise on the efforts uh, to make the mythic invitational happen. And I'm not taking any of that away. I just think we can't pretend it's all rosy, right? That's an unfair picture of what's going on. There's a lot of people who don't understand their place in magic presently. And there's a lot of people who want a path forward. And I don't want to ignore that viewpoint either. I think all of these people have valid claims. There's valid reasons to be excited. There's valid reasons to be all in on the future of magic as an esport. But there's also still this lingering kind of malaise from the transition. And as we fill that out, I mean, that's what I really need from the MPL right now is just some more clarity, some steps to move this forward, to understand what's happening. And it would be good if there were like check-ins just because there's been radio silence for so long. And I understand, you know, I think for a long time, Wizards was more inclined to check in. And then they started getting beat up for that because there was the announcements of the announcements. And then I think the new response has kind of been like, okay, if we don't have everything clear, we're just going to sit back for a while. And that's also frustrating. So somewhere in the middle would be nice, like no communication, overly communicating. There's got to be a sweet spot, and I don't think we've hit it quite yet. But it would be nice to just get a little check-in and be like, we're going to lay out the path to the MPL this month, and then we're going to let you know how to become a gold pro in this month, and we're going to have our replacement for that kind of lower level of pro play in this month. And just some kind of roadmap. I mean, roadmapping is a big thing in this world, right? Like you, you lay out the paths to these kind of change. And I don't feel like we really have a clear roadmap forward. That's my main point of frustration. I agree. But I also think that there's just a different way to do it where even if you're not like, okay, you know, May is going to be when we announce this, June is going to be when we announce this. You could just be like, hey, these are the things that we know are problems. These are how we are trying to solve them. And this is like ideally what we would like to have happen. Like right now, I, I think that there's there's still a lot of just overall negativity with the gold and silver players because they don't really have a roadmap and they don't know if they're supposed to be like grinding pro tours or like trying to get mythic points or whatever. Like then no one knows what they're supposed to be doing. Before it was like, okay, I go to a PPTQ, I win that. I go to an RPTQ, I win that. I go to a PT, I win that. I get to play in Worlds, I'm Platinum, whatever. And now it's just like, how how do I proceed? What am I supposed to be doing? Am I supposed to be like grinding these tournaments or am I supposed to quit? And that sort of thing sucks. But even if they're just like, yes, keep playing pro tours, we're going to make it so pro points are still relevant or whatever. Like that would be fine with me. And maybe legally, like you can't really 
take that amount of hardline stance or whatever. But I do think that you could still just be like, ideally in a perfect world, like this is what we would want to happen, but it's not, you know, binding us in any way, shape or form. We can go back on this, you know, and I think that would be completely fine. Sure. That's one approach, legally safe approach. We'll, we'll see what happens in the coming months. Again, don't want to get bogged down in negativity. We're moving to a good place. And even if the road there is bumpy, I'm convinced the final destination will be worthwhile and a net positive for Magic. Yeah. And you got to look at it like the, the final destination might take a ways to get to. But in the meantime, there are going to be tournaments like the Mythic Invitational that are a pretty big hit. And yep. that's that's even with you know me kind of getting screwed in round one and with the format being pretty bad and all of this stuff, right? Like there's there's a lot of bumps along the way, but the people at Wizards are still like very smart, very capable of putting on like a good show and a good product and stuff like that. So yeah, we're it's not perfect. Like we're not there. And I think things have been kind of rocky for like the last five years or so when basically like when big PTQs had to end, you know. Right. Like since, since then, they've just been trying to scramble to like figure out what they should actually be doing and what the system should look like. And I do think we'll get there eventually, but like, you know, right, right now things are pretty bad. And I certainly feel for uh, a lot of my contemporaries and peers and everything where they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And I kind of feel that way too, you know, because I don't know what it's going to take to be in the MPL next year. I have no idea. Right. Well, I guess the one benefit is we get to see a lot of the players who would otherwise be chasing pro status over on the SCG tour. And we've been rewarded with some good magic over there. Uh, you know, people like Edgar who have kind of committed to that tour, who is also a gold pro and qualified for every PT, but is like, I need some kind of thing to chase. I may as well go to this SCG thing. And uh, it's worked out for us with some good high quality magic. So always a silver lining, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, obviously thankful that Star City is there to like offer this grassroots tournament series to people who may not want to travel a bunch to Grand Prix or whatever, but happen to live on the East Coast or whatever. Like, I, I think that is very, very cool. And mm-hmm. I, I certainly took advantage of it in like the early 2010 era type stuff. So, Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see players finding an outlet. Us West Coasters will... Uh... We'll keep playing arena, I guess. I don't know. Same stuff as always. <laughs> no West Coast tournament scene to be had, but such is such is life. We get the good weather. They get the good magic tournaments. Yeah, I'm fine with that. I mean, we have we have good people around us too. So yep, well, it's I'll always always a good time. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It, in the meantime, I guess if you want to go to a tournament, I think you should go to the tournament. I don't think you should necessarily be planning on like you know trying to hit like a gold or silver equivalent type of level, right? Like those things just don't exist. It's just like, just right. play magic. However, however much or little you want to, it sucks that there is not like this thing at the end of the rainbow, like this thing for you to strive for. But instead of just like, oh, I want to hit gold this year. It's just like, I want to do as good as possible. Like do the best that I possibly can in this tournament and the next tournament and the next tournament. And that kind of sucks. But I think that that is basically how people have to operate for now. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, look at, we keep having on these guests who have achieved incredible things. We had on Javier Dominguez, world champion. We had on Autumn, who just won the last Mythic Championship. And the common thread is always just like, play Magic, get better, don't worry about anything else. And I think that's still a fine path to follow. If Magic is the thing you love, just keep working on it. Because there's going to be opportunities for everyone, even if we don't know the shape they're going to take right now. Yeah, and if, uh, I don't know, you feel like you don't have 
anything to really strive for, like break modern, ship me a deck list, help me do well in London because because right nice. now I'm struggling. Well, well positioned. Yeah, just just break it for Jerry. That's sure to lead to probably my job. I'll be kicked out of here because I haven't broken it for him in a long time, and he doesn't listen to me when I do anyway. So, you know, I did listen to you by playing Nev Magus Elemental, right? <laughs> okay, actually, he has a reason to not listen to me. So we're going to go ahead and forgive him in this case. But no, whenever I solicit people for deck lists or whatever, no one ever gives it to me, you know? And like, sometimes there are people who end up breaking it and I'm just like, yo, what the hell? Like, why didn't, why didn't you loop me in? And they're just like, oh, I just didn't think of it or whatever. So like, I try and put the feelers out, you know? No, good idea. You've made a clear statement. You are looking for deck lists. Send Jerry deck lists, blow up his Twitter feed with your hottest modern ideas. Make sure he gets a nice result coming up in London. Only if they're good though, please. <laughs> <laughs> so don't waste his time with bad ideas. He doesn't have time for that. Only good ones. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to send me like a, a dope mono red prison list, like I'm in for that. Let's go. Oh, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> All right, man. Sign us out. <laughs> That's game. Good luck.